Let's start in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for many graces and blessings that we've received. I want to thank my family, my daughter who spent all last week with me, and my son who is here with me for this week, uh, and the many prayers that you've all offered, and well wishes, etc. So we thank you for so many graces and blessings, and we ask your blessing on our efforts today that we might truly understand uh, the subjects that we are talking about and uh, the video that we'll be seeing a little later. So we thank you and we praise you in all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today I want to c- concentrate on uh, sort of three related subjects. Uh, the covenant family that we had talked about before, the covenant in itself, uh, and the family uh, concept that goes with it. Right? And then the importance of family down through the ages, particularly in the Old Testament, but actually just as important in the New Testament. So beginning with Abraham and down through Old Testament history, God has made it very clear that the family unit is a vital part of his creation. Going further, the family unit includes mother, father, and children, or the desire for children. Even the Holy Family is considered, uh, I'm sorry, even the Holy Trinity is considered a family. Pope John Paul II says, God in his deepest mystery is not a solitude or a single person, but a family, since he has in himself fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of the family, which is love, or the Holy Spirit. So this meeting will then focus on Mary's motherhood and her role as Queen of Heaven and Earth. And for all the purposes of seeing Mary as our spiritual mother and to help develop a deeper relationship with her. Now, we know from many of the stories that we've already talked about how the family unit was so important to God, uh, even right in the beginning. It says that when God created Adam, he was not complete without a woman, somebody who was his equal and made in the same image of God as he was. And therefore, God created Eve. Going further into the area of Abraham, as we had talked about before, God's need for partners was extremely important for his plan of salvation so that he could ask and count on certain people as partners in furthering his plan of salvation. And that is true with Abraham. It took a family, Abraham and his wife Sarah, and eventually his son Isaac, to begin the Jewish nation. 
and down through the ages that has continued. Even in Abraham's time, his son Isaac bore twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And you know the little interesting story there. Uh, Esau was the first to be born of the twins and was indicated as the firstborn son. But later on as an adult, he sort of sold his birthright to his brother simply because he was hungry and too lazy to fix his own dinner. Uh, and there was enough for two under uh, Jacob's efforts, whatever it was. And so Esau sold his birthright uh, to Jacob. And that was part of God's plan also, because Jacob was then the father of the 12 tribes of Jacob. And Jacob had two legitimate wives and two concubines, uh, but that was acceptable in their culture at that time. But it was through him that he had the 12 sons that we call the 12 uh, sons, or from which the 12 tribes of Jacob developed. So again, the importance of family life uh, and family to God's plan of salvation. Further in uh, the Old Testament, there are many, many stories of family, but I think one of the most interesting uh, is the one of Hannah. Hannah and her husband, Elk, uh, Elkanah. Elkanah. Uh, and Hannah wanted children very badly, but could not have them uh, for whatever reason. And she prayed and prayed and prayed. And there was this interesting story in uh, chapter 1 of the first book of Samuel. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. Really, they're very short chapters. I recommend that you read them. Uh, and she prayed and prayed. And to the point where Eli, the priest uh, in the temple at that time, thought she was a little uh, inebriated, let's put it that and she said, no, it was just that she was so sincere and so desiring of a child that she perhaps uh, maybe overdid the emotions of her prayer. But God answered her prayer. And uh, Hannah then bore the son Samuel. And she offered a prayer which became the basis for uh, many prayers, but primarily Mary's Magnificat that we read in uh, Luke's chapter 1 or chapter 2, whatever. Okay, But I, I won't belabor the point, but family life is extremely important to God. And he used it down through the ages to indicate and to implement his plan of salvation. Okay. Even the story of John the Baptist involves the mother and the father. And so we can see that that he carried that into the New Testament times. And of course, we come right down to the family, which we call the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, which was, of course, very important in God's plan of salvation 
to bring forth the Savior of the world. So family life is extremely important. But let me talk a little bit about motherhood. Not that I are one, but uh, (laughs) uh, motherhood is defined in many ways. Uh, But true motherhood cannot be defined outside of the realm of her children. Because even though a man and wife are properly married uh, by themselves, they are really not a family. It is not until they have children or the desire for children, because as we all know, some families cannot have children. Uh, Hannah and and her husband and uh, John the Baptist and his wife, St. Elizabeth. St. Elizabeth. I'll get that one right this time. Uh, They couldn't have children. So it's the desire for children or the, the having of children that actually makes a family. Uh, I want to read a little bit from one of my many sources here. This is from Scott Hahn's book, but I think it's very appropriate um, for the subject here. It says, How then could mankind fulfill the human end of the covenant in a way that would last forever. That would require a man to be sinless as and as constant as God. Thus, for the new and everlasting covenant, God became man in Jesus Christ, and he established the covenant by which we become part of his family, the family of God. And that is why in many ways, we have found the subject of family life. And it wasn't until the New Testament that the terms brother and sister to include everybody in a close, everybody who has a close relationship. Uh, and even today, when you hear scripture read in, in church, it the first or the second reading often starts out, dear brother and sister, or some very close uh, equivalent of that. Uh, And that is because we are the family of God now. The Jewish people were often called the chosen people, and they were chosen. They were chosen for a reason. And that reason, as we've talked about many times, was to develop a family and a nation, a country, a community that would become a model and a source for God to speak through them to all the other nations. Unfortunately, they misunderstood that and uh, closed themselves up into an exclusive community and did just the opposite. But because of that, and a lot of the ways that the Jewish people uh, looked at God and reacted, it was sort of, okay, God will do whatever you ask, but we're going to do it our way. 
And of course, when it came down to facing God himself in the form of Jesus Christ, they rejected that as well. Uh, so God opened up this whole idea of the chosen people and has now changed it to called the people of God, where he opened the doors to everyone, all nations, all people, all cultures, all time, uh, and anyone who would accept him. And we become the family of God. And I think that that is one of the joyous reasons for belonging, particularly to the Catholic Church, is because it is a family, or should be, and if it isn't, then it's up to us to make it. So we cannot say that we don't belong because we are part of a family that's part of God himself. Remember, the Catholic Church is the extension of God himself. And many people try to separate the idea of God and church. You can't do that. If you are a true member of the church, you are an extension of God. And that's why we call ourselves the body of Christ. The fact that a family is made up of father, mother, and children, or the desire for children. Now, I keep saying that because I don't want anyone who hasn't been able to bear children to feel bad about it. If they have desired to have children, that's sufficient. Um, it's those people who have prevented children that should be very concerned right, about their condition. But when we get down to the Holy Family, now we are talking about Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Poor Joseph kind of gets left off to the side uh, but yet he was extremely important. If you compare the importance of Joseph of the New Temple uh, of the New Testament and look back at the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, that is the second youngest son of Jacob who got sold off to the Egyptians, but in the long run, saved not only Egypt at that particular time from a, a severe drought uh, and famine, but he also saved his own brothers and sisters and father and mother uh, in the same process because he became uh, the sort of the right arm, you might say, of the Pharaoh at that time. But there are so many things uh, about Joseph of the Old Testament and Joseph of the New Testament that sort of elevates the whole idea of who Joseph really was. Right. Now, we don't know much about him, but if you compare him uh, and the things that he went through in caring for a young woman who, that he was betrothed to, who he finds out is his already pregnant and accepts the fact of the angel that appeared to him and told him not to be concerned about that, that it was important and that he would be blessed because of it. Um, 
you got to give him a great deal of credit, okay? But it is Mary that we really want to talk about. Mary, the mother of God. And you'll get more out of this, hopefully, than, um, than I'm able to give you in the video that we will be seeing a little later. But what I'd like to do is read from this book here. Uh, you know, most of you have a copy of this book, Matthew Kelly's Rediscovering Catholicism. Yeah. If you would, when you have time, go to page 271. Um, and it's not that long. I'd like to read it for those who do not have a copy of this book. Mary is the most famous woman in history. And this book from National Geographic says the very same thing. The most powerful woman in the world. Uh, and of course he means that in a spiritual way more than a political or physical way. All right. Mary is the most famous woman in history. She leads all prominent women who have earned their fame by living a life of virtue. She has inspired more art and music than any other woman in history. And even in the modern age, she fascinates in them the imaginations of men and women of all faiths. Remember, she is the only woman mentioned by name in the Koran. In our own age, Mary has appeared on the cover of Time magazine more often than any other person. I suspect that if we are to reconcile the great disharmony that exists between the role of men and and the role of women in modern society, we will need the insight of this great feminine role model. It is possible for us. Is it possible for us to understand the dignity and the value, the mystery and the wonder of women without first understanding this woman? Beyond her fame, and her, her historical importance is her centrality to Christian life. The first Christians gathered around her for comfort and guidance, yet some modern Catholics treat her like she has some contagious disease. One of the great challenges that we face as modern Catholics is to find a genuine place for Mary in our spirituality. My wife, meaning Matthew Kelly's wife, um, recently gave birth to our first child, a son. Being a father has filled me with great spiritual insights. I love this little boy so much, and if I can love him so much in all my brokenness and in all my limitations, how much more God must love me or love us. Through my son, I have experienced the love of God in a whole new way. And I can say that also. I also just yearn to be with him. When, I'm, I, when I am on the road or even at the office for the day, I yearn to get home and hold him, play with him, be with him, 
And it strikes me that perhaps above everything else, God just yearns to be with us. You see, and all of this took place after he became part of a family. Up to this time, he was without children. The birth of our son has also renewed my relationship with Mary. It has occurred to me that no matter how much I love my son, my wife will always have a unique perspective in his life. And not only here, but in other places. It talks about the special bond between a mother and her child, which goes even deeper and in many ways extends further than the bond between a father and our loving father and his son. I have to repeat a little bit. It has occurred to me that no matter how much I love my son, my wife will always have a unique perspective on his life. It doesn't mean that she loves him more or that I love him less. It just means that a mother sees her child's life in a way that no one else can. If I don't take time occasionally to ask her about this motherly perspective, I unnecessarily miss a part of my life's, my son's life. A mother has a unique perspective. Nobody else sees the life of a child the way the mother does, not even the father. This is Mary's perspective of Jesus' life. It seems to me that every genuine Christian, not just Catholics, should be interested in that perspective, and not just interested, but fascinated. In the rosary, we ponder the life of Jesus through the eyes of his mother. This is an incredibly powerful experience if we enter into it fully. For those of you who may not have this book, I recommend it highly. You can get it at most any bookstore, particularly Catholic's bookstore, Amazon.com, or from the uh, publishing company here, DynamicCatholic.com. How many do not have a copy of this book? They have it in the narthex. Uh, yeah, well, it's over there. Anyone that has trouble finding a, or getting a copy, let me know, and I can get one for you. All right. But I recommend it highly because rediscovering, rediscovered Catholicism. Matthew Kelly. Matthew Kelly. <coughs> Well, the next question is, is interesting and it fits into what we're talking about. Uh, his question is that in the story of, of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, if you recall or know the story that after Samuel was weaned, which means after he was, you know, three, four, five years old, she took him to the temple and gave him back to God and placed him in the hands of Eli, the priest, 
Now, my question is, what was the purpose of the thinking of that? Because here she prayed so uh, emotionally that Eli thought she was drunk. And she wasn't. She was so sincere uh, because the stigma of a woman without children at that time uh, made them really a second-class citizen or less. Uh, and so she had the child, but she promised God in the process of her pleading for a child that she would give him back. This was all part of God's plan of salvation. All right, This was predetermined by God himself. Uh, and that was... That was not a real common thing, but it was not unusual either. Yes, yes. And of course, as we know, Samuel became a very influential person in the extension of God's plan of salvation. So that was all part of the long-term scheme. Um, is that sort of... Well, that that's part of it too. Uh, being uh, the firstborn son was very important to the mother and the father as well. Uh, the whole idea of mother, father, you know, son and daughters, etc., is not something that we uh, devised. A lot of people think that the Trinity, um, the, the idea of Jesus being considered the Son, is something that we devised in our language because we had no way else to explain it. No, actually it's the other way around. Our designation of mother, father, son, and daughter comes from the Trinity uh, in sort of around very roundabout way through the culture of the Jewish people and then into because that in other cultures the designation was not the same. Women were virtually not treated at all in mentioning uh, family life. Um, the other thing is too we've got to look at it uh, in a different way. Jesus himself when the when in Matthew's Gospel the apostles asked Jesus to teach them to pray, what does he do? The first words out of his mouth is say, pray by saying, our Father. Meaning, collectively, we as a family. Our Father. It's not my Father. Jesus could have said that, my Father, but it's our Father. And there are so many other designations along the the same way. Uh, Yes? Yes yes and no. That has been discussed many times. The question is, is there a gender for the Holy Spirit? And the answer is no. God is supersedes all genders. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit supersedes all genders. 
just because the second person of the Blessed Trinity became a man does not exclude them from also uh, as God still having all genders, including them. The idea of gender separation was God's way of (coughs) developing the family with the need for father and mother. And he carries that out through plant and animal life as well. But no, God in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exceeds all genders. It's only the second person of the Blessed Trinity that has the male gender, but only in his human life, not in his Godhood. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Remember the union of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ is called a hypostatic union. And I was asked one time, well, how long did that last? (laughs) Well, because Christ rose from the dead and is still alive, then the hypostatic union is still in existence. Something to think about. God in Jesus Christ is very much alive, body and soul. Now, of course, the question often comes to mind is, well, where is the body? Got to be somewhere. Well, we have the same situation in Mary. Remember, Mary's body was assumed into heaven because it could not, or God did not want it to be corrupted or decayed as normal bodies are. And therefore, the body was assumed into heaven as an indication of his um, acceptance of her role, her complete role in God's plan of salvation. And the fact that she was made without sin, or conceived without sin entirely, and remained that way throughout her life, you wouldn't want something that was so precious so pure and holy, to be decayed. And so it was his purpose as part of his plan uh, to assume her body into heaven at the end of her role in his plan. Now, we don't have any idea um, as to when that took place or where. A lot of people say, well, in Ephesus in this house, well, you know, we don't know for sure. All right. Yes, we believe that uh, St. John the Evangelist took Mary into his home, but then because he spent so much time uh, in Turkey that he went to Ephesus to avoid the persecution that was taking place throughout uh, Israel. And perhaps that is where she lived with him until she was taken up into heaven. 
Yes. He has a body still in heaven. We have no idea of where, but then God can do anything. Well, uh, and of course, he has appeared to certain people, and Mary has also. So, they needed a body in order to appear, you know. Okay. Um, but we have no idea of how or where that might be. Okay. But there, and in subsequent lessons or class meetings of this kind, we will be talking about the apparitions and some of the miracles that are uh, credited to Mary. Okay. Uh, the other thing that we want to talk about is the, the devotions. But I don't want to get too far in advance, but I want to give you at least some idea of what we will be talking about. Uh, yes, Alice? When you said the body is still alive, my first thought was the body was like the body. Is that not connected at all? Oh, yes. Uh, yes, Alice's comment here is the body is alive, and of course, we participate in seeing that through uh, the Eucharist. Okay. Um, and God, through Jesus Christ, demonstrated his ability. If we believe in the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, the stories that are in the only miracle that is in all four Gospels, uh, as we know, there are many, many miracles talked about and described in the four Gospels. Uh, and several of them are repeated in one or two or three. But the multiplication of the loaves and fishes is the only miracle that is in all four Gospels in detail. Right. And the, the purpose of that is, at least we think, the purpose of that is to demonstrate uh, the ability to God, of God to share himself with all mankind at all times, in all places, in all cultures. So, Alice's point is right. Is that we share and we see God, the body of Christ, but we see him in a way that is convenient. And there again, Remember, the whole idea of Christ being the Lamb of God, that phrase goes back to the Last Supper, and it goes back even further than that, all the way to the time of Moses, when the night before they were released from Egypt, or escaped from Egypt, uh, they had to have a special Passover meal, and Lamb was the main ingredient of that meal and it was to show that something had to be sacrificed uh, for the uh, escape you might say of mankind from slavery and we then take that as the same idea of something has to be offered in our escape from sin uh, but the Lamb of God became then, or the, the Lamb itself, 
became a metaphor, you might say, uh, of the offering that the Jewish people continued to offer and even till today, except today they've changed it to Turkey. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the whole idea of the lamb being sacrificed and shared among all the people. Remember the Bible story of, at that time talks about the fact that every family had to have a lamb and if the family was not large enough, then it could share it with the nearest family that also uh, was not quite large enough to share a whole lamb because the whole thing had to be consumed at that uh, meal and if it could not be, then it had to be burned up. It could not be uh, carried forward to the next day. Okay, so we have a, a number of these little things that are carried forward from the Old Testament into the New Testament and they sort of metamorphose into a, a, a different meaning or purpose. It's a foolish question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, why did they have to use it all that meal? Madge, you got me stumped. Well, I'm sorry, but I, I mean, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, uh, partly because they didn't want to, you know, they had no refrigeration in, the, in yeah, those yes, days. Yeah, I guess they wouldn't go to waste and spoil. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And the whole idea is spoilage is always a sign of, of decay. You I know. didn't even trap you. That's all right. <laughs> you are not the only one. Uh, <laughs> Do you think it was uh, possibly uh, considered holy or also a uh, showing that further on in the New Testament and, or when we take Holy Communion, the New Testament always consumes whether there's a fog or something happens to it? Well, you're talking about the lamb at the time of Passover. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't think so. I think it's the the fear of decay more than anything else. Yeah, you don't think that they considered it holy since it had to be a sacrifice? No, because in that culture and at that time period, the idea of things being holy, no, no. It didn't really start, the idea of things being holy didn't start until the Ark of the Covenant was built uh, just a short time later. Did the rule with the Passover meal as it consumed in one day, did that carry over to all of the following Passovers? Yes, no. All the following Passover is the same way. Yes. In fact, later on, the rule became that even the dishes of the Passover meal could not be used for other meals. Yes. The dishes, the the utensils for cooking uh, could not be used for other meals. They had to be kept separate for the next Passover. Now, a lot of Jewish people don't follow that, but that was the rule. Yeah. Yes, Karen? Yes. Now, perfect, yes. Karen said, is it not also... Uh, one of the uh, rules, for lack of a better term, that the <clears throat> lamb that was used in the Passover sacrifice uh, 
uh, be unblemished. Now, that doesn't mean dirty, because all lambs are dirty. You know, it means broken bones or wounds or sickness. Okay. And that had to be less than a year old. Okay. So there were a lot of prescriptions there that had to be fulfilled, and still are, except that unfortunately uh, I've been to uh, an official, and I've been to others, but I've been to an official Jewish ceremony um, in one of the big temples on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles, and it's very, very interesting. And it's a joyous, it's a joyous thing. It is not a sorrowful uh, gathering at all. Uh, they even have some little tricks uh, for the children included, and lots of songs. Bar mitzvah, no, no. Bar mitzvah is recognizing. Uh, a young boy coming of age. Oh, because I've been to one of them. Yeah. No, but, you know, a big party is a big party. <laughs> uh, no, but if any of you have an opportunity, and in this class years ago when we were uh, still over at St. Rose, remember, Connie? Uh, how we used to have, we would do a Christian version of a Jewish Seder. And we would have the traditional uh, bitter herbs. Uh, I did the lamb myself, and uh, everybody else furnished some of those. And then we had uh, other food as well, uh, which a Seder will have. It isn't limited to the, the bitter herbs, and I can't remember all of the detail, you know, the horseradish and so forth and so on. Uh, but they do have a lot of other food as well. Of course, I like all that part of it, but I'm just curious. Um, when they did sacrifices in the temple, did they have to consume that, that food then too? They probably would have. No, no. They, they did. Only they you know. mean late, later on? I, I don't know. Didn't they have sacrifices before? Anyone? No. 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 So is that the first sacrifice? Yes. The first sacrifice? Yes. That, the yes. Now that's an important point. Joe had just asked, did the Jewish people have no, because remember, they were slaves. They were slaves in Egypt, and and there wasn't any uh, development of Judaism to that point anyways. So there were no... That's right, and that is why God kind of dictated as to what it was to be and why and how it was to be carried out, etc. You remember, they had to eat standing up with their traveling clothes on. Uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, points that they had to fulfill. Uh, but again, it was all family-based. Right? Now, we know, and particularly if you saw Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, I mean, it had to be true. Uh, there were a lot of Jewish people that didn't want to go. You know, they were uh, ensconced in Egypt, and they, some of them had designated uh, positions of power, etc. And so they didn't want to go. Uh, and of course, then they were cast off. Totally. You had the same kind of thing uh, at the time of the Babylonian uh, exile, when Cyrus the Great allowed 
the people to return to Israel. A lot of them didn't want to go. A lot of them were born in Babylon and they had no idea of what Israel was like and they were comfortable where they were so they wanted to stay. They were cut off. Now, we don't know whether God punished them or not and that's not really our thing to say or important to it. Okay. Any other questions? You betcha. That's right. Yes. A lot of people assume when they go in there that there's a body there. Oh, I know. I was there uh, many, many years ago. We were talking about uh, the Holy Land. Um, and we were going into what is considered the crypt or the tomb that Christ was buried in. You know, you can actually walk inside of it. And I could hear somebody say behind me, is his body still in there? <laughs> and I thought, oh man, you know, where have you been? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They didn't hear about Easter Sunday, you know. Uh, oh well, that, that's, that's kind of the lie. Any other questions? Alright, yes, Cora. Yes. That's the same thing that would happen to all of us in the last judgment. Where our bodies will not be permitted, that they will also be glorified bodies in the final judgment. Now, you're making that, or you're asking me a question, is that true? Or is that? Yes, yes. Uh, the, the question or the statement that Cora asked was, after Christ's resurrection, we refer to his human body as the glorified body. And it is expected, according to St. Paul now, in his letter to the Corinthians, he tells us that when we die, and uh, after the last day, our bodies will be glorified as well. And I always say, well then, I'm sure I'm going to have hair. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any other questions? Alright. If not, I'm going to show the video and then we can talk about uh, any questions that you have in mind that comes up from the video. So, if you want to turn your chairs around. Now, one, one thing I have to let you know is that on these videos, they don't necessarily go along with the lecture part, right? They were created <coughs> by somebody, by Scott Hahn in uh, the St. Paul um, Evangelization Center for Theology, it's called, uh, and they had, of course, a little bit different objective. But they still show 
the essence of what this class is all about. And that is the development of our relationship with Mary, the mother of God. And if, if I hit it right, this thing will play. Well, I hope you found that interesting and educational. Any questions? Yes, uh, Rita? Uh, well, there's so many. And you got to remember that Bethlehem as well as Jerusalem were destroyed so many times. And in that culture, you know, they didn't go in and uh, rake everything out and clean it all up nicely and then build. They just built on top of what was there. In fact, uh, there are some catacombs in uh, Jerusalem that I've been in uh, that show uh, whole buildings and streets and so forth that have been, you know, excavated, you might say, and cleared out. Uh, they're part of the, the tourist route. Yeah, but they are as much as 40 feet below ground. Because, like I said, the city has been sacked and rebuilt so many times that they just pile everything on top of each other and start over. Yeah. Uh, Dick? This question has come up before, and I can't remember the answer to it. But three groups of 14 in the generation is what, what, 42 or something like that? If you give them each 100 years, that's 400 years, and there's a 1,000 years between David and Christ. You're right. Uh, numerically, in, in our understanding of uh, things of that kind, it does not add up. You're right. Uh, if you add any number, or take any a number assumed for uh, an average generation, times 14, uh, none of those fit in our sense of uh, arithmetic. 14 uh, times 40, you know, is a 560. Uh, the time between Abraham and, or rather, in between Moses and Christ is a thousand years, as, you, as you've just said. Uh, so, 500, the time between Moses and King David was approximately 500 years. So none of those fit. But that wasn't his intention. The writer was intending to show that the kingdom of Christ, as he mentioned it, was the reincarnation of the kingdom of David that was promised. If you go to Psalm 69, it talks about God's promise to David uh, that there would always be a king on the throne. Well, always be isn't quite the way we look at it. But uh, after the death of Christ, the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ is what he was really talking about. And as it says there, uh, the Jewish people used to put a great deal of emphasis on the numerical equivalent of letters, of, uh, yeah, of letters within a name or within uh, other words. 
And we have to kind of go back to what that culture was saying at that time uh, was the meaning of those words. Now, I can, in fact, I will, if I, if I, if I can, uh, bring a, sort of a diagram of what he was talking about. If you recall that uh, schedule or that paper I gave you on the four uh, periods of Old Testament history, right at the top of that, I say based somewhat, I didn't want to say loosely, I said based somewhat on um, Matthew, uh, I believe it's Matthew chapter 1 verse 17. Yeah. Okay. And uh, what I'll do is I'll bring in uh, the equivalent of what he was talking about uh, on that video. Yes, Howard? When I was doing some research on Matthew, like genealogy stuff, uh-huh. he was only referring to the sentence of David. He didn't care about all the other um, people in the Jewish faith coming down from, you know, Abraham all the way down to Jesus. No. He just wanted to find David. And it wasn't really as accurate as we would think of it in terms of our history today. But that wasn't his objective. Now, if you go to the Gospel of Luke, Luke gives you a genealogy also. But whereas Matthew started at David and went forward, uh, Luke starts with Christ and goes back not only to David, but to Abraham and all the way back to Adam, Adam and Eve. Well, you know there couldn't be possibly be accurate in our sense of history. But that is not, of course, what they were intended. The idea is the genealogy was trying to trace back to its origin. All right? And the kingdom in Matthew's Gospel dates back to David. All right. Any other questions? Yes. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Through the Father, yes. Well, you know, it's depending on the usage. It's, you know, if you wanted to really uh, claim Jewish heritage, you had to go through the mother. If you wanted to claim legal heritage legally, you go through the pot. Yeah. So, you know, they flip-flop back and forth depending on their, their personal use. No, that was Saul. Yeah. No, Saul actually became king and was king for almost 40 years. And he started out okay. But he got a little, you know, uh, carried away with himself and his importance and didn't end up very well, and God got rid of him. Okay? Uh, killed him off. Yeah. So be careful. <laughs> uh, okay. 
All right. Any other questions? All right. Well, I hope you got something out of this. Yeah. It was a good lesson. Good. All right. And we will do uh, similar things next week, God willing. You take care of yourself. I will do that. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing on our efforts as we again try to develop within our own mind and heart a devotion for your Mother Mary. Help us to then to see her in the light that you want us to see her. Not as general society looks at Mary today, but as the great mother of God, the intercessor, and those of the most closest person to God. Remember, she is a, uh, a human being, but she is the most closest person to Christ Jesus. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. Amen.